0: You have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince. Welcome to AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. I'm your host, Ramiya Amudin, with co-host Jacob Szymanski and technical producer Nasrin Abdel-Majid. And we're all coming in on this question. Who has read Fifty Shades of Grey? The trilogy, the first book... I will even go as far as to ask if you've watched
1: the movies. It'll somewhat count. Nasreen starting with you. I've never watched it. I've never read it. Oh. I was never really interested in it. Okay. And I feel like it was trending for such a long time that I'm like, um, should I get on it? Should I not? But it never really f- fully pulled me in.
0: Scared you away, did it?
1: Yeah. All the popular. Yeah, <laughs> Jay?
2: I've never read the whole thing, but... I was always fascinated with it. So I've read a bunch of samples from it and excerpts to the point where I've probably read like half of it.
0: Like, you know, you know what it's
2: about. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know what it's about. And I'm the one that picked the quote of the day today, which was from Fifty Shades of Grey for reasons that we'll find out a little later. Mm If you're not familiar, Fifty
0: Shades of Grey by E.L. James. You know, SM, right? They they didn't refer to it as BDSM stuff, they uh, talked about it as SM content sadism masochism you know
2: oh That's, <laughs> am I supposed to know that
0: what okay <laughs> anyways this is the content around 50 shades of gray I am not everybody go and Google it if you're completely unfamiliar but the reason why we're bringing it up Jacob you were gonna say
2: mm-hmm um I was having fun looking for a quote from this book going on the uh, Goodreads <laughs> quote page which is hilarious because I I think people are kind of trolling because they're picking quotes in the book that are, like, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, usually you're supposed to pick the most thought-provoking ones and powerful quotes. <laughs> but in here, they're just, like, choosing, like, the worst ones. I think it's kind of a trolling campaign, to be mm-hmm. honest. <laughs> Give us I can't, some examples. I can't read the, mass, the vast majority of them. But one of them here is, I feel the heat rising in my cheeks again. I must be the color of the communist manifesto. <laughs>
0: Is that a real quote? That's a real From quote. the book. <laughs> or
2: my favorite, my inner goddess is jumping up and down, clapping her hands like a five year old.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, no way she said inner goddess and five year old in the same sentence in context of this
1: book. Oh my God. That is God. so disturbing in so many ways. I can't.
2: <laughs> I highly recommend anyone go see that page. It's hilarious. That's the Goodreads yeah. quote page for Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James.
1: Don't even
0: worry about reading the book. Just go to Goodreads and read the quotes, because woo. Yeah, anyways, okay, more generally, the book is categorized as erotica, and I think um, we're going to get into our taboo topics again, because this is part two. There's just so many, so many good things we want to get to. We barely scratched the surface last time we brought up taboo topics, but on today's episode, we will take a look at the page. homepage, uh, shout out our friends from the Center for Equitable Library Access. Also, Know Your Narrator is on the docket today with Sarah Hillis. She's featuring longtime legendary narrator George Gwedell. So we'll get to who that is and why he's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But taboo topics, people. This discussion continues, and we, I guess, the good place to start is love times three.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Debbie wrote this one in, eh?
0: Yes, Debbie Williams, my friend and neighbor, uh, wrote to us about Love Times Three, and this is the title of the book, Our True Story of a Polygamous Marriage by Joe Darger, Vicky Darger, Valerie Darger, and Brooke Adams. So it's about polygamy, and um, I want to kind of tell you what it's about because it's pretty juicy and very taboo, for me at least. Written in the voices of the four parents, Love Times 3 is the story of one man, his three wives, and their 24 children as they live out their faith in a world of prejudice, misconception, and fear. This includes a chapter on the sister-wife dynamic, one from Joe on how he juggles his three distinctive romantic relationships, and a chapter from three of their children called My Three Moms. Despite the risk of legal action... (laughs) The Dargers know it's time to counteract Hollywood's sensational interpretation and correct the general public's misunderstanding of polygamy with the truth. Now, for the first time, Joe, Alina, Vicky, and Valerie Darger... I don't know if it's Darger or Darger. I've said both now. Lift the veil on their so-called taboo way of life. Okay. I mean, if that is enough to talk about, then uh, I don't know
2: what is. You know, in looking into this book... Excuse me. In looking into this book, one of the things that I saw in a couple of reviews is that this book is like somewhat mundane mm. and it seems that that's the point because there's a bunch of reality TV shows on TLC and stuff that portray the polygamous lifestyle as being this like outlandish, crazy, dramatic lifestyle and I think what this book is trying to do is to normalize it like it seems to be explicitly advocating for the lifestyle
0: that's true i think that it feels a little outdated to me okay and hear me out i I don't know much about polygamy and i don't outdated how like not outdated but it's almost like we're sensationalizing polygamy but i think we're a little further ahead than that Um, So there are a lot of podcasts now and, you know, reality TV shows and all kinds of things where polygamy is being explored. I wouldn't say it's not taboo, obviously, Hmm. because it's not the regular way of life. But um, maybe since the release of this book, there's just been so much more on polygamy that it doesn't feel as glorified as it once did.
2: And it was released in 2011, if you're curious.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 12 years ago. Um, Dan Savage has a podcast and it just does so much work around, you know, monogamish relationships. And I think that was kind of like an opening into this kind of conversation. So that's one thing that I would point to as just like a huge content creator, um, huge exploration into polygamy. But with books like this... Hmm. It really does depend on the reader, right? Like, if you're going into it thinking, oh, my goodness, which is what Debbie describes um, her experience as, she's still asking the questions like people sharing partners. That is wild to think about, Um, you know, normalizing women sharing men and each other, but not the other way around being as popularized
2: yeah, that's right that really seems to be the typical way that polygamy is done. It's like men with multiple wives, but yeah. never the other way around. And why is that?
0: Mm-hmm. And then religion
2: right. Well, the religious aspect is one of the main reasons why yes. people feel uncomfortable mm. from it because it's like, especially in in Catholicism and Christianity, like yes. they're not cool with polygamy
0: because monogamy is the only way of life, mm-hmm. religiously speaking.
2: There is a book series that I was a really big fan of, uh, The Wheel of Time, which I'm a huge fan of that book series. And recently got an adaptation on Amazon Prime. And one of the aspects of the book series that I'm really curious to see how Amazon is going to be adapting is there is a polygamous relationship in the books. And I don't know how they're going to handle it in the show and see if people are open to it because it literally is a main character like a male who has like three wives spoiler alert (laughs) and i don't know how they're going to portray that like and i don't even know if they're going to keep it in and it'll be an interesting
0: like if it's too taboo to make the cut
2: yeah i'm really wondering what they're going to do with that although it's probably not going to come for another couple seasons still but it'll be an interesting benchmark on where the zeitgeist is right now in terms of where society stands with polygamy
0: yeah yeah, and that's a fair question. Like in twenty twenty three, where are we at, right? And that's what I meant earlier when this book was released in twenty eleven. It's like, oh my gosh! But honestly, twelve years later, at least coming from my perspective, it's like yeah, it's just a little too glorified, I think. But on TV, it almost feels like a different game. You know, it's yeah. that question of like prime time, or you know, are we ready for that yet?
2: We'll see. We'll uh, touch base when we know more about that.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but when we're talking about sex being taboo in literature, I think there are a lot of places to go with that. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, as I said, the the BDSM, the the s side of things, but also just erotica in general. You know, it, it's there's a lot of like guilty pleasure aspects when you mm-hmm. read books like this. You're not necessarily just outwardly recommending or you associate certain books with certain parts of our population like oh this is a YA book a young adult book I don't think that anybody over a certain age would read this or most like typically women are reading books like this and not men but I think that's why when Fifty Shades hit the market it was so it went viral
2: it was definitely a moment yep that we all remember like having discussions with people about this book and like what it was all about, and like so many people read it, it was absolutely like a big moment in pop culture. Mm-hmm. But I'd argue that sex is the ultimate taboo.
0: You think so? Is it not? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I would agree. No, was...
0: You would agree with yourself, yeah? Absolutely,
2: <laughs> I agree with myself all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, I would agree with you because there's it, sex itself is not just one topic; it's like an umbrella of. Right, and there's so much to argue about. I think, like with the S&M side of things, um, you know, we're talking like sex toys. That becomes a part of the question. We're talking about um, what do they call it? Like sadomasochism. You know, just uh, violence in sex, consensual violence.
2: Yeah, which are themes that are like explicitly explored in this book. Yes, and I'd argue that. Fifty Shades of Grey got as popular as it did because of taboos. Yeah. Because it was so exciting to learn about these things, about BDSM and uh, the other one. and <laughs> SNM, yeah. yes. It was so exciting to learn about these things. Then you talk to your friends about it and be like, what is that all about? And right. It was like a dirty little secret everybody exactly. was in on. And it was kind of exciting, yeah. you know?
0: Role-playing, right? Role-playing where they're using taboos um, outright, like... You know, she's submissive, and this is the kind of role mm. that she would play, and that stuff. Honestly, it even got, um, I would say, more divided when the movies came out. Because when you're reading it, you're almost reading it privately, right? Like in your own homes, talking about it in whispers. <laughs> then the movies come out, everyone's out there in the theaters, and it was just <laughs> Sharing <outrageous>. a room?
2: <laughs> yes. In this same room? Yeah, yeah that, like, there that's there were scenes very that made
0: so uncomfortable and so upset also
2: (laughs) right another thing they explore in 50 shades of gray is like these problematic power dynamics where it's like someone in a position of power like a big rich ceo and just like some intern and it's questionable because there's obviously one person who has a lot of power over the other and this is going to sound like a bit of a tangent but there was a big story that came out in 2016 having to do with Vice President Mike Pence at the time. Mm. It came out that he had an internal rule where he would never go out for dinner with a woman alone. Like, it would never be just him and a woman. Now, people were wondering, like, why would he do that? It was either one of two things. It was like a religious thing. Like, he doesn't want to be tempted or whatever.
0: Right.
2: Or the other possibility is that it was so that he could avoid these power dynamics these uncomfortable ah. situations, right? Meanwhile, Fifty Shades of Grey is super popular, arguably fetishizing these exact problematic power dynamics.
1: Yes.
0: And in politics, it's real. Yes, but it's absolutely Fifty Shades, real. But in it's role play.
2: Yeah. In, in Mike Pence's case, it's a lot more understandable. Yes. Whereas in Fifty Shades of Grey, it's like, yeah, it's... Well, it still could be seen as problematic because oh, sure. it's, if you're fetishizing it, you're kind of tacitly endorsing it.
0: And the idea or, of role play is like the 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 power dynamics that exist in real life that we're taking and making into fantasy, right?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. But that, it's just that mm-hmm. fantasy, right? As long mm-hmm. as you don't, you still understand that it's problematic in like a business setting or politics mm. setting.
1: Okay, I can tell you guys about a book that I started reading. Oh, here's screen um, with the... Uh... Yes. Do you see <laughs> synopses of a book again? I need to hear this, yeah. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: I found this on uh, Bookstagram. <laughs> what? And...
0: <laughs> Wait, can you first tell <laughs> yeah. us about Bookstagram?
1: Okay, Bookstagram is where people recommend books on Instagram. Oh, I
0: should have known that.
1: I was like, okay, let's look at... Because we got into taboo books and I was just so intrigued and I was like interested in getting into those books. And I found this book and it's it's actually messed up in so many ways. It's twisted. It's edgy as we explored last time and it's called Untouchable by Sam Mar- Mariano. I don't know if you guys started reading this book but no. Okay, they're high schoolers. Let me start this off. They're they're high schoolers and that's why it starts off with it being so messed up because they're still young. And it's about a guy sexually assaulting a girl. And she decides that if she doesn't pursue this relationship with him, she'll be responsible for any other woman he might potentially uh, assault. And so she pursues this relationship with what? him. So she's trying to pursue this relationship so she can avoid any other sexual assault that he might uh, he might. Explore kind of thing with any other girl, and she feels like she's being the hero here, which is so wrong. I want to highlight that this is very, very wrong. Mm. <laughs> Nobody thinks like that. This is one of those books that I'm like, what did I start reading
2: in the middle? Well, there's yeah. a lot to unpack there. I mean, there's a you're lot when you go through unpack, traumatic yeah. situations like that. You you can process in all sorts of different ways, and in a weird way that kind of reaction seems almost plausible
1: Mm. like psychologically yeah Yeah, Yeah. that's what
2: makes it kind of uncomfortable eh?
1: it makes it uncomfortable because they're also very young like you guys are talking about high schoolers here and some people read these books and they're like oh this is dark romance um this is not romance uh let's point that out i don't like how young girls can potentially look at this as dark romance and people can potentially pursue these kind of relationships. This is very toxic. It's you get, interesting, You get right? what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, the labeling of can be very controversial,
0: right? And I'm not yeah. necessarily something saying that something is right or wrong, but it's like the biases that we come from, which some people yeah. might say this is super unhealthy to label that as romantic, and then other people might say, yeah, but there are elements that even if it is misconstrued, there mm-hmm. are elements of romance in this.
1: Yeah, and I it's feel uncomfortable. like uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable.
0: It's like when you're going but, and you watching know. like thrillers, like psychological thrillers of some sort. You know, you're yeah. not necessarily going and thinking, yeah, this stuff is good for me. <laughs> it's very disturbing. Like you, you know the uh yeah. book series you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to get the like, author for that. Y-
1: just the idea of young girls looking at mm-hmm. this kind of romance and being like, "I want this kind of romance. I want this relationship," even though you know he bullies her, he does this to her, he abuses her. Yeah, but they you're still that pursue may not be it. Be able to
0: separate the exactly the good. And I feel like it.
1: these are very controversial books that counts as a taboo topic as well.
2: Oh, no doubt. No mm. doubt it's taboo. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it's attracting so much attention. Like, it's labeled as dark romance, but is it marketed towards young adults? Like, is it YA? Yeah.
1: It
0: would what would be. you yeah. say? Yeah. It is? Yeah, it Typically, is. these kind of things are
2: marketed as mm-hmm. YA. Oh, God. I know. That's uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> exactly. It is. <laughs> but then, then we beg the question, okay, uh, how about censorship then, right? Like, are we really going to say read or don't read? Do we take these off shelves, or do we just put the rating on and then? No, there's so much <laughs> worse out the there. On. Though. Just put the rating on.
2: Just mm. put the rating on. Censorship doesn't work. People are gonna find it regardless. Yeah, I know.
1: I feel like even if you take off, uh, take it off bookshelves. There's so much worse that are still on the bookshelves. Oh no doubt. Uh, yeah. Oh, we're getting into the iffy side of things,
0: guys. <laughs> 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 okay. All right. Uh, Shall we let people know what's coming up on CELA? Let's do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Here are the three titles that are up there at the Center for Equitable Library Access, which you can find at celalibrary.ca. These are the three featured titles, okay? Nice and organized by heading here for you. Number one is The Whispers by Ashley Audrain which we reviewed last week. Super fun time. No, the week before that. My goodness. And the second one up there is The Wager by David Graham, which is a history title. And the last one is The Misses by E.L. James, which is a romance. So I guess E.L. James is still...
2: E.L. James? Really? Yeah. Wow, coincidentally. Still
0: doing things. I know. The (laughs) Misses. Does that sound provocative enough? I don't know. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And it's categorized as a romance, so... Hit us up with your opinions on whether it should be Dark
2: romance or standard? (laughs) Just
0: (laughs) romance. Keeping it generic,
2: James. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Okay. We're going to switch gears uh, for a couple minutes before we get into Know Your Narrator with Sarah Hillis after the break. And this is part of a conversation that I had with Bill Shackleton back in August. August seems like a while back. So... Here we go. Let's listen to the clip, and it's about one of Billy's experiences um, regarding books, and then we'll get into a chat. Did you spend a lot of time in libraries as a blind person? Not
3: specifically in libraries, but I certainly borrowed books for many, 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 many years from the public library and, of course, the CNIB.
0: And did you find your experience difficult challenging pretty straightforward because you know for me like growing up with low vision I didn't think that the library was very accessible um they didn't have a lot of books or formats that made sense to me that I could read but I enjoyed going to a library because it was quiet that was the only reason why I would end up at a library I enjoyed that quiet which I never got in the house um, i never had
3: a problem with with cassettes at all i mean they there were there there are all kinds of my they used to send me like five or ten uh ten books at a time and no i
0: never had it at the I CNIB didn't. library yeah yeah and but did and, you ever and, walk and, over to your neighborhood library
3: no mm-hmm. i didn't um because what i did was they have uh, you know i and i guess they still do a main library where they would um, send all the books from. So there was a main circulation to one, and then one main library had tons of the books, and they just sent them out. Mm. And there was a bookmobile, bookmobile, they called it. Right. And what they would do is, you go to your. They would stop at a plaza near where I used to live, and we used to. I used to get down there and get the books from there. They'd have the books in bags, and you would just get them. Oh, see, that's fun.
0: That oh, sounds yeah. so interactive to me. Like, even if you're not necessarily um, picking up books that you could read, like physical books. Did you say they had cassettes and such, though? Oh, like yeah. Audi- talking about Absolutely. Books? Oh, yeah. I oh, got Amazing. But they also had physical books. The book They did. They would. Yeah. They, they, they did. Right, right. So even if you're not necessarily going and finding everything you like, it's kind of like a farmer's market where you're just going for the experience of it.
3: Well, you tell them what kind of books you like, and they do their best. To try know, to accommodate. To try to accommodate you. And these are books that other people have donated. and I would assume so. They came from, a lot of them came from the States. A lot of them came from, yeah. Right. Um, I don't know. I guess a I B in some cases.
0: Do you remember going with, like, who you would go to these bookmobiles with? Oh, the... my
3: father, usually. Really? And we'd pick, up, we'd pick up two or three bags of books, and... Yeah. It's sort of pot luck. You never know what you were going to get. Sure.
0: And do you remember actually being part of that experience, taking, picking books, choosing books, talking to the people who were running the bookmobile?
3: No, because they'd already picked them. They they oh, just have the books in bags. So you just go and you pick up. just grab up, a bag. Yeah, grab a bag.
0: Kind of fun. Yeah. That's really fun, Billy. You never,
3: you never I, knew.
0: I don't think there's any parallel experience that I've had um or that people could have now really with this. I, I guess like things like audiobooks sync, um, you know, programs and initiatives like that where people are having chats on social media about books that they've chosen or books that are available for free reading. Things like that, but it's definitely not the same as um the neighborhood stop not bookmobile. really.
3: And there's no need for cassettes. Although I get I don't even know whether you can still do it.
0: Yeah, how could you do a digital version of the bookmobile?
3: Um, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Like you get a free book in your
0: email inbox. <laughs>
3: you know, I, I guess you just download a book. I mm. mean now you just, you just download it. I well, mean, I don't that, know what else. That's what most of us do.
2: That was Bill Shackleton, longtime AMI technical producer, talking about how he used to procure books back in the day. Rams, mm. a mobile library?
0: Yeah. Bookmobile?
2: Bookmobile. Yeah. That is super cool.
0: This sounds like something, <laughs> you know, that you should, um, <laughs> you know, like a retro experience that people should bring up just for the novelty of it or the nostalgia yeah, of it. Yeah. Right? Just
2: some guy in a big white yes. van with like those sliding doors and it's like... <laughs> There's just shelves and shelves (laughs) of books in there. You
0: can't say white van without sounding suspicious anymore. You looking for some books, kids? (laughs) (laughs) Don't do this. Jacob.
2: (laughs) But But no, real talk, though, we've always romanticized book distribution. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this idealistic image of a library, and there's always these articles being written about, like, new ways of books being distributed or mm. uh, free book programs. And we're always so proud of that stuff. And just reading in general is so idealistic. And this bookmobile is exactly that. It's it's, it's just – it's beautiful.
0: Yeah. it's It's cute. You have, like, I don't know, the bonding sessions with the people you're going with. And I'm not sure if that – I'm romanticizing that part of it because, you know, if I'm blind – and I'm going with my mom or dad or friends. You're kind of exploring books together. And that seems very different from the way we do books now.
2: Yeah, Audible like, recommends. Yeah, just getting a, like a bag full of books that yeah. hasn't been picked out by an algorithm. Exactly. It's just like some dude in the back of a van just chucked them together.
0: <laughs> Again with a van.
2: Yeah, no. Why does it have to <laughs> be a van? Can we get something a little less uh, sketchy? Yeah, Thanks.
1: maybe like a cart.
2: Yeah. Like a U-Haul well, a truck.
1: Book, I was going to say a bus.
2: Or a bus. A bus. Yeah, the, book bus.
1: <laughs> the book bus. The book bus. The book bus. It's going to be yellow.
2: Way nice. Like school
1: bus vibe.
0: And then we all just sit around and hang out and <laughs> read together. I kind of like it. <laughs> I kind of like it. It's not as complicated as the library. The
1: books on the bus go open and close. <laughs> 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 like
0: a good a time as any to wrap up this part guys let's wrap Thank yeah, you please. so much all right we'll be back with sarah hillis uh, she has know your narrator for us this is ami audiobook review the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks and we are getting into know your narrator with our friend sarah hillis who joins us once a month to feature a notable narrator in the world of audiobooks, and we shout out these voices behind our favorite listens. We haven't gotten to any of our not-so-favorite listens yet, but we're getting to know the fascinating lives and backgrounds of these individuals, which actually are very interesting. And Sarah, you do the research. You bring us the people. And today, we're learning about George Goodell. Uh Unfamiliar to me. Jacob, familiar to you? Uh, no, ma'am. Okay.
4: So, why George Guidall? Sarah? Well, I've known his narration for many years. Uh, he's a veteran recorded books narrator. So anybody that follows the recorded books uh, publishing world mm. is uh, is familiar with him. Uh, he's been doing it since, I think, the, the 70s sometime. Uh, and he start, got a start actually uh, with uh, the American Foundation for the Blind in like the mid-60s or somewhere like that. Uh, I haven't heard any of those books, but I, I suppose I could try to find some somewhere. But uh, they're getting superseded along the way; those older books by by newer recordings of, for, for especially commercial recordings, because a lot of these uh, blindness organizations are, rightly so, I suppose, just getting the rights to use commercial recordings now. So, hmm. yeah. So he did get his start in in the way that a lot of us grew up, you know. And it, Bill was talking the other the other week about uh, you know. All the talking books he remembered, and uh, yeah, so he might he might know George Guidall. I don't know.
0: And we've talked about um, narrators who have done a lot of work. I mean, this man sounds like the goat. He's ha- read how many books? Over seventeen
4: hundred. That's pretty wild.
2: He has four hundred and eighty available on Audible alone right now. Wow.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. Okay. <laughs>
0: Um, and tell us more about like where he started or how far this gig has taken him clearly well
4: he was born in he's born in in New Jersey in nineteen thirty eight uh went into theater, you know basically bucking the trend of his family who just basically had jobs like his dad is a pharmacist, you know, and he he just wanted to be an actor, so he did that uh hung out in you know, new York did a lot of on and off Broadway plays he was in neil simon's chapter two for one thing on on some oh. run of it or other uh and uh, he was he he's just been uh around the scene for many many years uh did some acting on uh many daytime soaps i don't have a list but a lot of these new york actors go on the daytime soap operas because they can get some money for a few for a few months or a few weeks and and when he was on one of the daytime soaps, he was really annoyed at the soap and the character. I was like, oh, I, I just hate this. He's in his mid-20s or something. So it's a it's really old daytime soap. Mm. <laughs> and uh, one of the, like maybe the guiding light or something, I don't know. But one of, the, one of the actors said, you know, do you think you're a professional? And he said, yeah, I am. I get paid for what I do. And he said, that's not being a professional. Ooh. Being a professional is loving what you do, even when you don't love doing it. Yeah, we got to sit with that one for a bit.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure about that. What, what do you think about that, Rams?
0: Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of the business conversations I've had talk about that, right? Like, even if, you know, if you're not getting paid, you got to love what you do. But I think right now, especially in the side gig economy, it's hard. Because so many narrators are doing, like, a lot of different things. And I'm, I'm sure they love some level of what they do in everything, but... Is it really the case all the time?
2: I always assumed that being a professional meant that you do it for a living.
0: Yeah, and do it well.
2: I suppose. I guess it's all relative.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to know. You can be employed
2: but not do it well. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Still makes you a professional.
0: Oh, no. I got to disagree. Are you a professional if you don't do it well? Just because you're getting paid for it?
2: I think so. Hmm. Absolutely. I
4: think you're a paid person. <laughs> I think. I think. That <laughs> exactly. Being an, exactly. Niz, no, jump in a, here.
1: Okay. Yeah. Fine. I. I being don't a... agree with that. I. I don't. <laughs> I don't think person. that you're a professional, <laughs> just because you're a paid person. Yeah, that's not. A bunch <laughs> that of. That doesn't paid professional. a professional.
2: So professional just means that you're really good at what you do
0: and getting paid for it. For yeah, that mind. is that Okay. Is well, if I'm element. really
2: good at Super Mario, oh. does that mean you're professional Mario player?
0: If you're getting paid
2: for it. Exactly. Oh, That's wait, what I'm saying. Wait, okay, you wait. just proved my point. You know? right.
1: Rams. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. okay like so anyway. tangent over. Go on. <laughs> but you just said, my Jacob, goodness. that you're really good at it. That's what makes you a professional as well. Yeah. You can be getting paid and you're really good at At it. Those combinations right. make you a professional. A lawyer I think him.
2: we can all agree so, that if you're both, A, really good at it, <laughs> and B, getting paid for it, that you're makes a professional. you a professional. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what, saying. what this is. That was my first is. line.
4: All right, Sarah, go on. <laughs> so the point of what he took from this story in his life and his George career. Goodell that, wondering what they heck to We're good- or still with Goodell, somewhere along the line here. Um, George Goodell um, took this, this piece of advice to mean that even if I'm not happy with the particular thing I'm doing... I owe it to my art to do it well because I love doing what I do. So even when, say, he doesn't get a book that he is overly in love with, he still knows someone else loves it and he has to perform it well and he has to do a good job of it because he has a responsibility to somebody who's listening to that book and saying, you know, I I want to hear this guy narrate this book and I want to hear this book narrated well, I don't want to hear it phoned in, you know. That's kind of, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that's that's what he took from that, and uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so yes, he got to start in commercial narration with recorded books, and uh, basically got started with westerns and other things. For some reason, they wanted to give him westerns. He said, "He said, yeah, they gave me westerns because I was born in New Jersey and knew nothing about the West." <laughs> that was sort of his his sort of sarcastic way of. <laughs> saying why they gave him the the job of doing the Louis Lemours and the you know things like that but uh, mm, and his but New Jersey on...
2: accent kind of does come out in his reading right
4: yeah i think i think it's sort of a generic new jersey new York-y kind of thing that he that he has i don't even know if he tries to he's sort of i find it sort of he softens his r's sometimes a little bit it's an interesting it's hard to tell actually
0: it's like, can kind we... of Play the sample, because I, I this is an interesting part of the discussion. Like, I can't tell, but then I could tell after listening to the sample a second time. So, Niz, hit us up. Riley
5: stood on the balcony, overlooking Main Street, just as one of those fancy new trucks pulled in, all shiny. The kind of truck he wasn't ever going to be able to afford, unless he sold the hotel. And as far as he knew, nobody was buying, especially since Dad had died. Your clock is broken. He'd been fixing the upstairs... It wasn't the season for those kinds of repairs, but when the storm had blown through the other evening, it had taken the railing with it. He'd carried it back up the main stairs and fed it out the door after shoveling the balcony and was trying to get it secured before the ever-present wind took hold of it again. Standing, he looked down at the native, probably Blackfoot or Hassanaboyne. Say what? The large man in the black duster pointed to the clock on the exterior of the hotel. Its hands read 817. Your clock. It is broken. It's right twice a day. Making the old joke, he thought about it. As far as I know, it hasn't ever worked, and I've been remodeling the place for five years now.
4: The sample is from um, Hell is Empty by Craig Johnson. It's a Walt Longmire book recorded by Recorded Books and used by permission, and it's available at fine audiobook sellers everywhere. Listeners know we're still very excited about having samples because, um...
0: It's like what the second sample we played on the show, <laughs> so. it's something to
2: be proud of. <laughs>
0: yeah, of course. Okay, so does this sound like a New Jersey accent to you guys? And yes,
2: not okay. quite to me, honestly. Though I have a sneaking suspicion that that's because of the setting of the book. Sarah, can you can you tell us where this book is set? Uh,
4: it's set in Wyoming. So that's um, west. At least usually right? it's set in Wyoming. He he. That's his typical. Um, accent i, I sort oh, yeah. of feel like it's his typical sort of acting accent maybe
2: um mm, right that is a uh, thing right because if you have a, a very distinguished accent like somebody from new jersey would and when you're doing your acting gigs you're not necessarily going to be talking right. like that right it's too it's too pronounced it's too obvious right
0: do you find as well the pacing makes it more or less difficult like i feel that if he was you know reading faster or maybe you can talk about this Sarah in his uh older recordings when he was younger if you can tell the accent differently or closer to New Jersey
4: I don't find I don't find it a New Jersey accent I find it a sort of random northeast American kind of accent to me it's just it's kind of a conglomeration of of a bunch of things I think Mm -hmm. and in his um older recordings that is when he's younger (laughs) and in in recordings recorded when he was younger, (laughs) he, um, he's, he, his diction is so good that you're always understanding what he's saying. Like I I've never had a problem with it. Uh, right now we can hear this is, he did this in 2022. So you can hear the, he's, he's 85 now, like he was 84 then, but he's in his eighties. And you can kind of hear that that's, that's changing slightly just because he's older and uh, you know these things happen i guess as as one ages can but, you speak
2: uh, to his versatility
4: yeah he he has narrated um classics a very awesome version of les misérables by victor hugo which is huge and tons of characters and you are, you always know where you are with him it's great uh he's narrated mysteries like longmire um he's narrated history like, this big, wonderful thing, which is a big, huge history of Texas. Uh, he's narrated uh, fantasy, like Neil Gaiman's American Gods. He did a version of that. Um, just tons of different stuff. Mm-hmm. I saw years. he
2: also did the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Oh. He did,
4: too. I, I haven't been reading the audio versions of that, but yeah. Mm. yeah. because so you're reading the Braille versions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay, and so... The- Yes.
2: Do you ever do both at the same time? <laughs> braille and I audio? I have
4: before, yeah. The audio, Um, <laughs> the the problem with the audio is that there aren't the same narrator for the whole series, and it bothers me.
2: Oh, I hate the that. Dark Tower specifically? Oh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It's so yeah. disjointed. Why did they yeah, do I, that? I cannot get behind that. That's it's such a huge
0: series, too. <laughs> like, it's very well known. Why would you yeah. not think ahead to just make every. The same person read every uh, book.
2: Well, I think there's always this know. dilemma with old series where when they recorded the audiobooks like in the 90s or something or in the 80s or 90s before audiobooks were huge, mm-hmm. it come like 2015, 2020, there's this dilemma like do we rerecord it or yes. not? Because we already have a perfectly good audiobook oh. and especially in fantasy, these books are like 30 hours long.
0: Absolutely. Like,
2: it's a huge ordeal. I agree with you. They should re-record it, but I've come across a ton of old books that I'm like, yeah. all right, these books are still super relevant. Recorded in 1988. Great. Mm. It was probably <laughs> recorded on tape.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. seriously, for more than one reason, please re-record these books and use the same narrator. I get annoyed with uh, audio describers being changed throughout different seasons of series. I can't imagine like getting so invested in a 30-hour book and then the next 30-hour book is like a whole new person. No, no, no. Um Sarah, how does he prep for his reads? Did he talk about this?
4: Yeah, he he does read his books. Obviously, most of most narrators do. But with the smaller books, um, he he kind of tends to skim them a little just because he's so busy. Uh, and he, fi- he finds the arc of the story and the main characters and, and what, you know, what kind of conflicts they're dealing with. And then he kind of wants to be as spontaneous as he can with, with some of the smaller books in the studio. So he kind of, he sort of, reads enough to understand it he gets you know to the end but he doesn't like read it in depth then in the studio he just starts speaking and then his engineer will say okay that's good that's not good and then he'll just keep on going he wants to uh, he wants to just let it out in on the day kind of thing whatever whatever happens then happens then he doesn't like too much you know prepping in that sense with classics though he's really meticulous he wants to be sure that everybody is going to you know like what he's doing because it is a classic. It's he wants it to pr- be pronounced right and everything like that, right? So, yeah. You know, with any kind of classic
0: that. literature, I think you're, as a narrator, you have the pressure of, as with any other art, right? Like you're redoing something that's already well known. The critique that you're probably going to face is, uh, you know, existent. And um, so you feel the pressure, especially with someone like him who's doing a lot.
2: There's also a yeah. level of prestigiousness that comes with being selected to read classics and also really popular books like Mm. uh, i don't know let me think of any popular book that's coming up uh i don't know the next book in the game of thrones series if it ever comes out whoever gets selected (laughs) to read that audiobook is going to be instantly famous
0: yeah it's true definitely true okay so he he talks to that the difference of reading something that's you know very very reputable versus something that he he's just doing.
4: Yeah, I think for some of the like the fantasy and the history and like the or the mystery rather this sort of shorter books, I think he he just doesn't want to be too tied down because he think like they're they're also kind of fun most of the time and he wants to make sure that he can be free to 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 do what needs to be done. He he talks a lot about supporting characters and how they can be a little more colorful vocal wise, but the main characters have to be you know as carefully done as possible so that they don't sound over the top they're they're telling the story or they're they're the ones that are talking the most and you you want them to be good but not ridiculous sounding but some of the supporting characters you can you can make them sound more colorful because that makes them more vivid to the mm. reader as well and yeah he calls it vocal portraits <laughs> oh that's nice
0: i yeah. wonder too like if you were to pick something completely out of your default or comfort zone for the main character, right? Just vocally. How exhausting it would be to maintain that throughout <laughs> an entire book or series.
2: Oh
4: yeah. Crazy exhausting. Yeah, that just doesn't sound <laughs> realistic to me.
2: Especially considering yeah. that he does it like the day of. Like he doesn't even prepare that much, sounds yeah.
4: like. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't tend to like some some narrators we've talked about totally mark up their scripts like this character sounds like whatever. Like whatever mm-hmm. they need to st- see to be able to do it right and the, he just he just kind of gets gets it in his head and vaguely and then he just he puts it out there as as he does you know on the on the on the any given time
2: yeah. uh, i can imagine that being a good narrator means that you also need to be a very good reader he needs to fundamentally understand what's happening in the text mm-hmm. that he's reading to be able to portray it to interpret it properly right
4: yeah, this is interesting. Actually, he says that he never read during his childhood and high school times Sports. and stuff. He never read books. Like he That's never. Right. Really, there are people who haven't read. His, his <laughs> mom kept saying, no, "George, you have to read. You have to read. Like, why aren't you reading books? Like, you should read." And it's only when he became an actor that, of course, he had to start reading plays. <laughs> and it's only when he, well, I mean, he read things. He read what he had to read, but he didn't read for pleasure, really, right? And then once he started narrating books. He said, I understand the power of words now that I have to perform them. And now he loves books. It's very interesting that he
0: only started reading when it became part of his job. You know how we talk about like, oh, the worst part of my job is. Or like the things you have to put up with because you love this job. Like as a teacher, you got a mark, which is not fun. But you love teaching. This guy's like, I have to read (laughs) for my reading job. (laughs)
2: Where's the worst part of your job? Yeah, reading. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but thank goodness I love narrating. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, you know the this is an interesting point that Sarah you wanted to bring up, but like when he got started, there weren't many narrators. He's been doing this for decades, and he's got a whole lot of reading under his belt, narration. Um, but when he got started, it's not like every other person could narrate. Now we have tons and tons of narrators and tons of versions of books that are narrated by, you know, more than one option, right, of a narrator. But he got a start when it wasn't really that everyone was narrating.
4: Yeah, I mean, audiobooks, I mean unabridged audiobooks it was hard to find any of those around until recorded books really got going Mm. Um, a lot of places said well we don't they've already read the book but this is a sort of listen along kind of feature so let's do abridgments which you know they didn't even mention chapter names or anything it was just kind of Here's the little, you know, two cassette book or something, you know, and so a lot of places were doing that, and then and then recorded books and a couple other things uh, like Blackstone uh, audio and stuff came along and said we're not going to do that, we're going to do a, a, unabridged recordings, and so and slowly the audio, the commercial audiobook uh, market got got bigger, but yeah, in the beginning there were like only a f- sort of a few narrators, most of whom I would say had come from the talking book world, and some of whom hadn't, but most of them had. Uh, and um, so, yeah, you you get you you build up a, quite a lot of books if you're only one of I don't right. know ten or twelve or twenty whatever working narrators. Now there's all these people who like might narrate one book a year, but they have like another a, job doing I don't know graphic design or something sure. like that, <laughs>
0: like just as a side like the, gig. Like, there, yeah, yeah.
4: And and of course, the whole landscape has changed where there's a lot of people just recording from home and Sending in files, and George is—he's like he—I don't, don't want to do that. I—I I want an engineer with me. I want a director with me. I think that I do better work if someone else is looking over my shoulder. Uh, he told a really interesting story—a sad story, really. He narrated *Night* by Elie Wiesel, which is a a wonderful book, but it's a horrible book to to get through if you're at all emotional. It's it's Elie mm-hmm. Wiesel's memories of the Holocaust okay. and concentration camps. And um, he he asked his engineer, who was a, a woman, a young woman in her 20s, he said, like, do you know about the Holocaust? This is going to be a, a difficult book. She said, well, yeah, we did a unit of it in school, in college, kind of thing. And he's like, okay, well, I hope you'll be okay. And within the first 100 pages, she was just in absolute tears. She c- couldn't see the copy. She couldn't see, she, she couldn't do it. They had to get a new engineer um, because she just hadn't really known about it you know like when you when you read someone's personal memoir it's a whole different story mm-hmm. than just this is what happened you know and uh, so and he he's Jewish too but he had to narrate this and he he managed it and he did it but uh, again he felt very responsible to Eloise and and you know there are people who you write to him now, even still, and say, look, I tried to listen to this book. I've read it before, but I tried to listen to it. And you, your narration is so good that I can't listen to it.
0: Ugh. That is rough. I I think that that speaks to, first of all, this, you know, notion of being able to hand your book off to somebody or any kind of work, art, um, off to somebody for collaboration and just trusting them in it. But, yeah, it it hits very deeply I'm sure to then have your work read back back to the point where you're like I can't even listen
2: it sounds like he took his he took that responsibility on and Mm. he managed to get through it
4: he did yeah another thing is he loves when authors tell him that when they hear his book it's like it's like they're reading it for the first time or hearing it for the first time because he does something that they didn't think might would happen but but it gives them a new understanding of their own book mm. and he thinks that's really great if, if he can sort of do that for them that's that's really cool
0: well i think having a voice read your book rather than you know you reading a print copy of your book or reading it in your own voice just does that period right because you're listening back as if it's something else not the thing you wrote
2: Right, There's a because bit of a disconnect. It's clearly somebody else's interpretation of yes. your book, whereas when you're writing it as an author, you're obviously reading it, writing it in your head, in mm. your mind's eye.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But that's great, though, that people feedback like this. I think that that, um, we've said this in past conversations, Sarah, it really connects the author to the narrator, to the publisher, whatever. Like, it feels like a, a project rather than, you know, I wrote this book. Dump it off, and whoever narrates it narrates it. I love that it's all part of the process,
4: yeah, I think it depends on the author and the narrator and the and the publisher and whatever but uh, the other thing he he really loves getting fan letters uh, and he gets fan letters that say you know you've you really helped me you know I was ill in bed for three weeks, and I listened to this really long book, and you were there all the time, even though I was sick you know, or just having a tough time or being alone or or just having my life you know as being my life you've you've helped me pass the time he really likes hearing from fans about that at uh, one time he got a fan letter though that said you know there's too much you know profanity and sex and violence in this book you don't usually read books like this like so he he kind of has made it a bit of a rule that, that you know, there, there are books that are George Goodell books and there are books really? that are not George Goodell. Like not him, but the publisher too. I mean, once once he got those letters, he was like, well, I don't want to mm. be responsible no for way. people.
2: He has an <laughs> thinking, image, I guess he wants to uphold, oh,
4: eh? Yeah, yeah kind of, yeah.
2: He was yeah. involved in reading the Holy Bible, which uh, on Audible is a digestible 102 hours.
4: <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that version before.
2: One hundred and two. <laughs> Triple digits!
4: <laughs>
2: never heard of that. If you want to use up your credit on Audible, that's how you buy it. You know, Actually, that one's totally
4: worth your credit. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> but it makes sense for someone to want to manage their, their image like that, right? Because like, if you have fans, that's very valuable. And if you're pissing off your fans, they're not going to come back, right?
0: Well, once you've read the
4: Bible, you can't really...
2: He didn't read the oh. whole thing, to be clear. Like, we yeah, had a right. bunch of different readers for that one.
4: No. <laughs> well, uh, I have a story about a whole other narrator called Ale- Alexander Scorby. He still has an award named after him from the American Foundation for the Blind because he read the entire King James Holy Bible in the 40s or 50s. And then I heard him read The Great Gatsby, and there's all these, you know, you know, profanity in there. And it's, a, it's a great book. <laughs> but I was like, this doesn't sound right. And yet he did it really well. We're but typecasting like, wow. our narrators. Yeah, exactly. Unreal. <laughs> he's just an actor like anybody else. Yeah, but... exactly. <laughs>
0: no, but it's true. It, it gets ingrained, right? I, I don't know what it is about voices, but it's just stuck in your head that way, and you just can't. It mm. takes so long to unravel.
2: Although it's probably easier to picture, like, a New Jersey accent saying a bunch of profanity than, than something more standard. <laughs> yeah.
0: He's he's on the side of the wrong reputation. He should go more for the profanity.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> Um, <laughs> when I first encountered him, I didn't know he was a narrator. I thought he was just some, like, flunky at recorded books. Because all I ever heard was, this is Tess of the D'Urbervilles, narrated by Davina Porter. And Thomas Hardy was blah, 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 or whatever whatever it oh, was. Like it he wasn't that one. It was a different. Days? Yeah, he did. He Like, the, what they did for a while was have another narrator do uh, an intro, and then promote, the actual yeah. narrator read the book. And so... <laughs> But so for weather, he was the only person I heard doing the intros of these the guy who didn't books, make it, and I never heard him re- read a full novel until a little later, and I was like, "Oh, he's like an actor guy." Yeah. Okay, and also he has like
0: seventeen hundred
4: books. <laughs> yeah, imagine that.
0: Yeah, well, at the, the time it might have been thing. like five
4: hundred, right? When the flunky <laughs> recorded books, I love
0: that. Um, this is funny.
4: Tell us about his social work. This he's uh, well, he back to the apparently. Community? Yeah, apparently when he was 50, he got a master's in social work. And I don't know how long he did this for, but he did counseling in the day and then did his acting stuff at night. And who knows when he did the narration? I don't know. But he would have been narrating by this point. Uh, So, yeah, he, he, he I don't know how long again this was his one of his careers, but obviously he he did it and so he was a counselor. I don't know if he's a good counselor or a bad mm. counselor or whatever. But he's but... doing things in the similar in a similar vein,
0: right? Like the um talks or presentations that he gives at libraries and conferences.
4: Yeah, he has he has a presentation called The Art and Artifice of Audiobook Narration. And uh someone said, "Well, there's a library in New Jersey that wants to hear a book narrator. Can you do it?" This was in like the 70s and he's like, "Why would I want to talk to a library? What's the point of this?" But he walks in the room and everybody's like it's George Goodell he's narrated you know whatever he narrated you know at the time and so everybody sort of knew him and he was like hey that's cool mm-hmm. so <laughs> he had no idea he was like a well-known narrator at that point you know.
0: That's <laughs> lovely I, I think that that's nice Um, because we have so many conversations about narrators now but I don't think that conversation was necessarily accessible uh, at a before a given point, you know, where people could say, I love this narrator. I love uh, storytelling this way and things like that.
4: Well, Whoa. yeah, and audiobook, audiobooks were kind of niche, too, because mm-hmm. they were like $100 mm-hmm. a book. Whoa. Or maybe not quite, but they were quite expensive <laughs> yes, to yes. buy those. And you had to mail away for them. And like, it wasn't just you didn't go really to a store. Them, right? Not everybody. No, it was mm-hmm. like. Busy people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Who I don't know. I don't know. It was it was really niche back then. Though. I mean,
2: at one point they had them on vinyl records, right? And then on tape. Mm-hmm. Like those mediums are expensive just to start with. That's so true. like the the versatility that comes with doing stuff digitally is like you can't you can't deny it.
0: Um, yeah, Sarah. Any final words on George Waddell?
4: Oh, just just that. I mean. I just think he's one of our greatest narrators. I don't know how much longer he can do it for, but he seems to be having no sign of stopping. He had a book come out this month called The Longmire Defense, so another Longmire. And next month in October, he's got a Philip Roth book called Exit Ghost coming out. So he's still doing it. Fantastic. And uh,
0: now we have another narrator in the books. Sarah, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. It's always fun, and it's always fun actually playing samples and talking around that as well. Mm -hmm. Sarah Hillis for Know Your Narrator, and we check in with her, give or take, once a month and find out about the voices of our audiobook listens and the backgrounds and interesting uh, ways that they narrate our audiobooks. Next week on AMI Audiobook Review, stay tuned for chats with two avid audiobook listeners, not just one. We have Jenny Bovard and Karen McGee, friends from AMI, joining us. They have book recommendations, and I think we have a fun game planned. Looking forward to that. And that's a wrap. I'm Ramiya Amuddin, host of the show with co-host Jacob Szymanski and technical producer Nasreen Abdel-Majid. We will be back in a week, and until then, happy audiobook listening.